Uh, so I will tell you, this is one of my favorite little sections of scripture. And I really love it so much because I think it tells us so much about God in a really condensed uh, bit. And um, it tells us so much about the heart of God. So as we just kind of dive in this week, it is my prayer that by the grace of God, that we would peel back the layers of this interaction and really know God more. And that at the end, the things that we know about God would make us join in with David and say, who am I? But we're also going to see that David doesn't stop there, that David moves from this awe and this thankfulness to a bold courage. And he moves to prayer to ask God to do all the things that he said he's going to do. And then David goes out to battle. He goes out to battle based on the promises of God. Okay, let's dive in. Chapter 7, verse 2 is where I want to start. And it says, See now, I dwell, this is David talking, in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And then Nathan the, pro Nathan the prophet says, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So I think it's interesting. We've talked a lot about the heart in First and Second Samuel. That's one of those themes that, that just keeps coming up. And uh, we've talked about the verse from Jeremiah 17.9, which reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So we also remember from David's calling back in 1 Samuel that what was said of David was that he was a man after God's own heart. So we have kind of this contrast, the human heart, sick, leading you astray, God's heart, where our focus should be. So we have these, these contrasts that we always want to be picturing. Human heart, often leading astray. God's heart, where our focus should be. And um, we get in this lesson, this fascinating, another fascinating lesson about the heart. And I'll say that this is one that I can relate to a lot and that I feel like I, uh, I learn the hard way a lot. And I see, I could probably give you 10 examples right now of things where I can see that this is true in my life. And um, the thing that I would say that we learn about the heart is that good intentions and good ideas are not always God intentions and God ideas and God timing. So in 1 Kings 8, 18, it says, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. So there's not a rebuke here for David, as much as a reorientation. Nathan, the new prophet on the scene, gets this most incredible revelation to take back to David. It's almost as if um, God is saying, David, thank you for wanting to do this for me. But that is not the way our relationship works. That is not the way we operate. You don't just do for me, I, God, do for you. I initiate and you respond. So this reminded me of an interaction I had with my son last night. So uh, in general, if one of our kids gets in trouble, uh, we don't tell the other kid why they got in trouble uh, unless they want to tell. And so Elijah had gotten in trouble and he didn't want Reagan to know why. 
And um, they were in the back of the car discussing this, that Reagan, didn't get to, that Reagan didn't get to know why. And Reagan was like, well, what if Mama told me? And so Elijah said, well, if Mama told you, Mama, I would be so mad at you, and I would take away your phone. <laughs> and I would spank you. And I would take away video games. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm not really a video game person. But it was, and we, then, of course, we all kind of started laughing. Sorry, son, that's not the way this relationship works. And I think that that really reminded me of this text. Um, that's what God is doing here. He goes through and reminds David again, look at our relationship. Look at the way it works. I chose you. I took you from the pasture and made you prince. And I have been with you. And I cut off your enemies. I do for you, David. And you respond. So after God reminds David of the way their relationship has always worked, that it has always been God moving toward David, God now tells David that not only has it always been me doing for you, there is so much more that I want to do for you. There is so much more that I plan to do for you in the future. And I think there are uh, lots of implications for this um, in our lives and an understanding that we can have really good ideas and good intentions, but they are not always what God is working at the time and um, that we can need reorienting. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the idea is bad or that the idea is wrong, but it can mean that the way that I'm thinking about it is wrong. And since this is about the house of God and David wanting to build it, it does bring to mind the church. And we can each have good intentions and good ideas about church and the way things should be done or not done or how we think we should get to use our gifts to build the church or, or what just the way we think the church should do things. We can have really good intentions and good ideas and I have felt different variations of that at different times of where I feel like the church should do this or I feel like the church shouldn't do that. And uh, as I was reading this passage, or I think I should be doing this for the church, uh, as I was reading this passage, I think I, I thought it was a really good reorientation to think about um, from God's perspective, what would God say to me about his church? And um, this is what I think God would say. Daughter... That is not how our relationship works. You don't come up with the good ideas for my church. I founded her. I bought her. I died for her. I reign over her. It's what I have done and what I will do that you need to gather your heart around. I will. I will. Kay Gabrish said, um, we need to have a healthy cynicism towards our own wisdom. Uh, and I'm not very good at that. <laughs> uh, although I can see God growing me in that. I've seen him, him grow me in that. To come to God and say, this seems good to me, but is this what you're working in your church? 
this seems good to me, but is this your initiation that I'm responding to? Or is this my good idea? Is this a good idea, but not the right timing? Uh, Or is this something that God would have me work my whole life at to bring about, but never realize in my lifetime? David goes on. He buys the land for the temple. He spends time and energy gathering all of these materials to have ready for Solomon. He spends his life for this good idea that will not be realized in his lifetime. So how do we have a healthy cynicism towards our own ideas to really recognize that God is who works and wills in the church? Um, One of the beautiful parts of this passage is how God describes himself in this first section. It says, I have not lived in a house. I have been moving about. I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so Dale Ralph Davis says, how can he, being God, settle down when the people are unsettled? So he is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. He will not rest till he gives rest to his people. So our God is with us. When we move, he moves. When, when he gives us rest, he'll rest with us. So whatever you find hard today, whatever your struggle, God does not pull back from it. He is with you in the tent. I have um, just a few things that are just really weighing on me right now. And as I was preparing, this was just such an encouragement that he does not pull back from my hardships. Just the opposite. He will not leave them a moment before he brings me out of them. He stays in them with me. And I I thought this passage was a comfort as well for the elders and for the church and for Brian and Jeanette as they're sent a little bit north. Um, God is not focused on the building. God is where the people are, and he doesn't mind moving. Um, So I loved that as an encouragement. And God explains that he is not going to be settled when his people are unsettled. Then he reminds David of how their relationship works, that it's God who initiates and sets the plans, and then we get to see God's plan. So how should we think about this Davidic covenant I think it's important that we kind of see it in, in multiple layers. But the, um, the word forever is used three times here. And that's not a word that would have been used commonly in the Old Testament. So when, when it says forever, that would definitely have made David perk up. Forever? 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 It says it three times. Then, on the other hand, we have this idea of disciplining like a son. So we have the kind of the, probably the way that it would work out as you kind of go down the line is that for a specific king in the Davidic line, it did, it did not guarantee that he would continue to reign, but it guarantees that for the Davidic line overall, that it would continue. 
This is where it is introduced to the people of God that the Savior will be a king. And this is also the first place where a specific person and not just the nation of Israel calls God Father. So these two beautiful things that I now totally take for granted, that God is king and father, this is where in scripture those things are revealed. And David, it's interesting if you read the Psalms, David doesn't call God father. He, he says a few things. He does say he's the father to the fatherless. And he says he's as a father who shows compassion to his son. But David doesn't really even take this title for himself. So we see that it's his greater son, Jesus, who comes and gives us the Lord's Prayer and begins really saying, God is Father in this fulfillment of this passage and really fulfilling that idea. And so for me, who almost every prayer I utter is Father, this is the roots of that. This is where that great relationship is, is, is fleshed out for us, that he will be a father to us. And I just think that's a very special thing to realize, that this is the moment in history where God says, Father. Uh, John Piper says of the Davidic covenant, Israel learned over the centuries following David and Solomon that disobedience in her king always brought the nation to ruin. But the godly among them knew one thing for sure. God had promised that the throne of David would be established forever. So they came to see that a son of David must be coming who would fulfill the conditions of the covenant, sit on David's throne, and rule forever. When a covenant is conditional and yet is also certain, you can be sure God himself will intervene to fulfill the conditions. So when we read this covenant, we see so much of Jesus. We see how the covenant couldn't even have been made without knowing that Jesus was coming, without knowing that he would be coming from the line of David, and that really all of these promises are wound up in Christ. David's house and kingdom and throne will continue, but it's Christ who is the one who sits on the throne. It's Christ who is the one who is the king. So we will see that in Christ, it's that God is able to say all of these things over and over. I will, I will, I will. And just kind of to to let us know where we're at in covenant history, we then move to the new covenant. And as each covenant kind of builds on the previous one, in the new covenant, we get a new piece of information a new incredible piece of information. It takes it even further. And Jeremiah 31 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So in the new covenant, we get this new revelation of the law in our hearts and of great forgiveness. So who are we as we consider the covenants? We are forgiven and we are God's children. But in Christ, we can't can't forget this Davidic covenant. In Christ, we too are a part of the royal line. This story of David does become our story. 
you know, and I think we can feel the distance from these covenants because they're really old. But I I found this verse in Psalms uh, interesting as I was thinking about the covenants. Uh, And it's about how God views time. And it says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So if you think about that, a thousand years is like a day. For God, these covenants are fresh. These promises, the mercies are new every morning. For him, this time that seems for us so long ago is so fresh. Um, and I want us to read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And I want us to try to stop and enter into the promises that are made there and to realize what Jesus has done for us and what in him we have and are called and to try to, to read it in such a way that at the end you say, who am I? Who am I? So not Nathan the prophet, but Peter is coming to you and this is his message for you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hmm. So who am I? I am God's. And I am all that he would have me to be. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A chosen child in the light, receiving of mercy. David, in response, uh, then calls himself a servant ten times. And that does feel like an appropriate response to me. Uh, Lord, you would do all of that for me? It's a different feel from the beginning of our passage where David it has his good ideas about what he's going to do for God. Um, now he sees God's ideas and God's timing are so much better than his ideas. And he's like, yeah, I'll happily serve those. Yes, servant <laughs> to those plans and those ideas. Um, and he ends this amazing interaction with a prayer saying, yes, Lord, do that. May it please you to do that. The last thing I want to focus in on is that after this, David went to battle. But wait, I thought God just promised him rest. Wasn't that, didn't we just read that? God just said, I will bring you rest. So why does he have to go to battle? Um, I think what we see here is what we sometimes resist, or at least I resist, practically in my own life, and yet it's so realistically what God, the way that I see that God works, 
is that um, a promise for rest is a call to battle. A promise is normally a call to battle, to let God bring the thing that he has promised. He makes a promise. He is going to bring it about. And the way he is going to bring it about is normally through battle, is normally through a fight of faith. It's normally through bringing that victory to real life in your, or into your real life. Uh, and not just a victory, but blessings that come from fighting the fight and blessings that come from the battle. So the promises of God for us in Christ give us the courage to go to battle. And we have to go to battle each day, armed with the promises of God against our sin, against our fear, against our apathy, our lack of self-control, our selfishness, our lack of love, our anger, our despair. We have to go to battle against our sin. And we have this promise that God is with us and that he will bring victory. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We can enter the battle because we know that this is what God is working. Now then, does this mean, you know, victory immediately? This normally means lots of battle. Um, he gets seasons of rest too. But this promise for rest led to David having, I am a warrior. I am to fight the good fight. Okay, let's end by reading a, a call of how we're to live. And it's a, it is a call to salvation.